This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. After a short hiatus, we're back. Uh, our monthly series, of course, which aims to arm Malaysians with constitutional literacy done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law and the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. With me today are Ki Hui Yi. She's a lawyer with Kanasalingam & Co. And Abraham Au. He's a constitutional lawyer from Messrs. G.S. Nija. Today, we're going to tackle uh, some recent events, you know, that cover both uh, laws regarding citizenship and also freedom of expression. Welcome both of you. How are you both today? I'm good. Good. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. So we are having uh, Abraham join us today because, you know, you were uh, the legal counsel for a huge, a huge case, right? And we had some really wonderful news, uh, very welcome news over the weekend, isn't it? Where cabinet under this new unity government uh, decided to update current laws to confer automatic citizenship to the children of Malaysian women who were born overseas. So I think, you know, this has been... A long one, uh, you know, and Malaysia is, of course, you know, one of, what is it, only 25 countries in the world that does not grant women the right to confer nationality on their children on an equal basis as men. Maybe, uh, Abraham, can you first sort of explain what the con- uh, federal constitution says about it? You know, there are some discrepancies, isn't it, in Article 14 and 15 of the federal constitution, which sort of allow this sort of gender-based discrimination to occur. Okay, Um First, on the issue of citizenship, we, sh- we must understand that um, there are generally gen- generally three ways in which citizenship rights can be conferred. Right? The first way, of course, which is a subject matter of what uh, we are de- going to discuss, also the subject matter of the court proceedings, as well as the subject matter of the latest cabinet uh, announcement, mm-hmm. is uh, citizenship to be granted by operation of law. Okay. Or in more layman parlance, we call it uh, uh, automatic citizenship. So automatic citizenship is granted uh, regardless of how the government views, right? Whether uh, the, this privilege of being a Malaysian citizen should be granted to you. Mm-hmm. That means it is not up to them to decide. It's not a discretionary right of the government. It is conferred by law. Yeah. if certain uh, criteria are fulfilled. Of course, there can also be uh, citizenship to be granted by registration, which is what uh, I think uh, you talked about just now on Article 15, 15 and 15A like, to be specific, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in which um, citizenship can be granted in certain circumstances as determined by the government. This is a matter of policy and a matter of discretion. And the third way in which citizenship can be granted is citizenship by naturalization, right? So I'm sure you have heard of news where, you know, certain football players have been, you know, working here, <laughs> I suppose, contributed to the country and upon um, uh, achieving or rather fulfilling certain criteria, they can then be naturalized as citizens, right? All right. So uh, these are the three ways. But I think what I would like to focus is uh, the first way which is citizenship by operation of law, what we call automatic citizenship. Mm. So when we talk about discrimination that existed within the confines of the constitution, uh, one must understand that the constitution was formulated at a time when we, our country achieved independent, uh, independence in a, in a rather patriarchal um, framework. Right. Um, and, 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 and rather suited to the societal 
circumstances at that point of time, which is in the 1950s and the early 60s, right? So um, I'm not going so much into the the international perspective of it, but our constitution basically says that uh, we have to look at Article 14 when you determine whether a person can be granted citizenship by operation of law. In the 1963, they have amended the constitution and then they moved all these specific criteria in which automatic citizenship is to be granted into a schedule, into a special schedule called the second schedule. Mm -hmm. The second schedule then sets out five circumstances uh, as to when uh, citizenship may be granted. Of course, the first uh, circumstance, the first situation in which automatic citizenship is granted is if a person is born to a Malaysian mother or Malaysian father and born within the federation. That means if we are born in Malaysia, then there's no question. Then you are granted uh, Malaysian citizenship. The discrimination would exist if, or rather the subject matter of our challenge, if the the child is born outside the federation, okay, to a Malaysian parent. Uh, This is where the gender uh, criteria comes into play. If you are born to a Malaysian father, you will be granted automatic citizenship. That means uh, the Malaysian father would, would be able to confer citizenship rights to the child. But if the, the, the tables are turned and you are a child that is born to a Malaysian mother outside the Federation, mm. then it is rather assumed or rather the practice has always been then you would follow the citizenship of the father and you will not be able to inherit uh, the citizenship by descent or rather by bloodline from the mother. So this seems to be incongruent with uh, you know, equality. Uh, the equality provision in which no discrimination should be allowed on the basis of gender. Okay, so uh, very specific words are being used in the second schedule, uh, especially the word father and the word mother. And a literal reading of these words would seem to suggest that uh, if your father would mean father, that means the male parent, and mother would mean the female parent. And if we were to interpret it literally, then that is the discrimination that exists and and has resulted in so much uh, social complications uh, based on the reports that we received. Right. So that's the general overview. Yeah. Okay. All right. And after years of like a lot of frustration, right? Um, Family Frontiers and uh, six affect- affected Malaysian mothers, right? They launched a a legal challenge, right? This was back in December 2020 uh, to seek for their children to be recognised as Malaysians and to stop, you know, what they saw as the country's discriminating uh, citizenship laws and discriminating against women in particular, right? Um, so you guys filed a constitutional challenge um, with the High Court back in, as I mentioned, December 2020, right? Um, can you, and that was to seek a declaration that Malaysian mothers married to foreign spouses are able to automatically confer citizenship for their children born overseas. Um, it's been, you know, it's been a crazy sort of timeline of events, I know. Um, but, you know, maybe you can briefly sort of walk us through uh, some of the key, uh, yeah, the key outcomes, you know, from all those sort of legal challenges that uh, Family Frontiers and, you know, Suri Kempe put up uh, and you guys were representing them, right? Yeah, correct. So we filed it in the High Court in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. Um, when we first filed the case... Uh, the government took an objection, a preliminary objection to strike out the case. And uh, to them, it's very clear. Father means father and mother means mother. You can't interpret, you can't stretch it in any way. 
fortunately for us, the High Court and the Court of Appeal, they went and on appeal as well, agreed that the matter is not to be struck out. Mm -hmm. It should be educated in full, uh, heard on the merits as well as the facts. So when the, the matter uh, was heard by the High Court, the High Court agreed with us to say that uh, when you cannot read the word father based on its natural, literal and dictionary meaning to connote only the male parent. Yeah. Uh, you, mu you must also uh, read it holistically and generously because uh, the, a constitution, unlike an ordinary legislation, so you see, when, when you, if, you look, if you look at what happened in parliament on almost a daily basis, laws are being passed, bills are being passed, right? So when a law is passed and the court interprets a law, the court would usually, most of the time, just read it based on its natural and ordinary meaning. It is clear enough. Hmm. If it's not clear enough, or rather if there's some room in which uh, the interpretation is permitted, then the court will then look back at the original intent of the legislature, i.e. what the legislature or what parliament had intended when it actually moved the bill or to pass that law. Right? Yeah. So... Our argument is that, and that was accepted by the High Court, is that when you interpret a constitution, which is the highest law of the land, you have to interpret it sui generis, which means that it actually uh, it allows for uh, an interpretation, a way of interpreting it on its, on its own. So what we say is that a constitution, it moves con continuously like an organism, like a living organism, and what this is what we call the organic theory of investigate uh, of interpretation. So you cannot interpret provisions such as citizenship provision based on how it is understood or how it was intended at that point of time. As I told you in the patriarchal context back in the 1950s and the 19, early 1960s, where 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 women don't actually travel out of the country, only the men, you know, who work and do travel out of the country. So. That was the context in which we mounted our challenge and say that we must interpret it in today's society, in the context of today's society. Mm -hmm. And especially in light of the fact that in 2001, year 2001, Parliament, in fact, had amended Article 8. So Article 8 is what we call the central pivot of the whole entire constitution. It is a, a, a provision which says that all persons are equal before the law. Mm. And then Clause 2 of Article 8 then says that uh, no person shall, no citizen shall be discriminated on various bases, on the basis of race, on the, uh, on, on the basis of the place of birth, place of residence, and so on. And what they did in 2001 was an aftermath in which our country has ratified the CEDAW. Yes. So when they ratified the CEDAW in conjunction with that international obligation, they also amended the constitution to say that there shall be no discrimination on the basis of gender okay so parliament must be state or must be uh, thought to have construed the constitution as a whole because when they amended one part of the constitution it is to be uh, assumed that they have also looked at the other uh, provisions of the constitution and have intended that this amendment to article 8 is to operate harmoniously across the entire constitution. Right. So when that amendment comes in, you, you then you cannot adopt the same interpretation as what you did back then in the 50s and say that it should be only limited to one gender. The right of conferring citizenship through 
your blood line is not exclusive to one gender mm. and it should not be a, a, a route in which only one gender can partake, but it should also be applied equally uh, amongst male and female. So uh, that was the crux of the argument that was accepted by the High Court, went up to the Court of Appeal, of course, government filed, for, uh, filed an appeal to the Court of Appeal. They tried to obtain a stay that failed. So we managed to, in fact, get the six uh, litigant mothers who have also participated in this case to have their children uh, be registered as citizens by virtue of this the High Court order. So when we were in the Court of Appeal, it took some time, it took a couple of months for mm. arguments to be fully ventilated. Uh, unfortunately, in uh, in August last year, the Court of Appeal by a 2-1 majority, that means there were three justices, two disagreed with us, one agreed with the High Court decision and our arguments. Uh, the majority said that, no, okay, you must interpret it as is, based on the original intent of the legislature. And if you feel that it's unjust and that if there's a problem with it, then the recall should be up to parliament mm. to, to amend the law. So that was the crux of the court of appeal decision. Of course, I think the court of appeal also went into certain uh, areas, the majority, I mean, into certain areas like, you know, social uh, contacts and that citizenship provisions are the entrenched right of the conference of rulers and uh, when you amend, when you amend the constitution, you need your consent. So, all the more the courts cannot interfere because then that would bypass the role of the rulers. Some of these points, which I I, I do not necessarily agree, and and uh, an appeal has been filed at the federal court. We have obtained leave to appeal back in November last year. Uh, back in sorry, back in December last year, the appeal is now pending in the federal court. Uh, there's a case management fixed in March, uh, which then an appeal will be will be fixed. And let's see if these points uh, can be fully canvassed uh, again by uh, hopefully uh, uh, I mean uh, a substantial bench of the court of, uh, of the federal court of at least five to seven judges. I would say is required to adjudicate this matter of constitutional importance. Mm-hmm. And can you just sort of tell us, um, you know, for 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 the, the the other side, you know, who were fighting against this, right? So your opposing counsel, right? What were the sort of reasons they were giving why uh, for why uh, women should not be allowed to confer automatic citizenship of their ch- of their children uh, who are born overseas? Okay, um, in the high court, they were more creative with their objections. <laughs> you know, they they did go into some history. Okay, but I think they were rather more careful. In the court of appeal, um, they then they then took rather a singular route to say that, well, I mean, uh, you have to interpret the constitution as is, mm. as is based on the language, and there's no reason to import any organic theory or any purposive or harmonious way of interpretation because father means father, uh, mother means mother. End of story. Right. This is essentially a very uh, straightforward argument. Okay. Right? And also, of course, as I mentioned just now, they also argued that this is an entrenched right of the Conference of Rulers under Article 159 of the Constitution, even though we sought to we say that it's different. I mean, Parliament has the prerogative to amend the Constitution, right? Yes. Um, under 159, there are criteria to, 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 to do that, but that doesn't prevent the court from interpreting the Constitution based on established. We are not introducing, in fact, new principles in which the Constitution should be interpreted but established principles of interpretation as far as the constitution is concerned. 
So of course the argument is that no, you have to if you do that, then you will be said to be rewriting the law. Mm-hmm. If you're rewriting the law, and um, the fact of the matter is that discrimination uh, should not be. Uh, uh, I mean, discrimination within the constitution is allowed. So, so they, what, what they are saying is that discrimination is only unlawful if it's forbidden by the constitution. If it's a discrimination that is allowed within the context of the constitution, in this case, when they say that only fathers are entitled, then that means, well, too bad, then mothers are not entitled. Wow. If it's discrimination that is allowed by the constitution, then we, we have to just apply the natural and ordinary meaning. Okay. So essentially, that is their their argument, Of course, they went into some. I'm not going to mention that there are some very extreme examples of you know, uh, you know, if you were to give uh citizenship to mothers who have been married outside, then you know there's a possibility. In fact, he, I mean, I mean, with all due respect to Leonard Council for the from the government, he did set out certain scenarios to say that oh, if you give citizenship to them, then you know one day they might turn out to be terrorist brides. You know, they may join some militant forces in the Middle East because since they are married overseas, you see, and then when they give birth, then you have Malaysian citizenship to our Harris as well, militants as well. So, you know, <laughs> these kind of God. alarming examples have been raised. Alarming, yeah. I'm not going to go into that in detail. But okay. These were part of the objections like, that they actually raised. Okay, okay. Because, you know, it wouldn't happen to a Malaysian father, right, who had children overseas, only the mothers. But never mind, let's not go into that. Um, but so what happens now, uh, Abraham, you know, now that uh, the government has... Uh, you know, up- decided that they're going to update the current laws and they're going to confer automatic citizenship to children of Malaysian women who are born overseas. What happens now? All right. First thing first, I'm not going to uh, say anything until the fat lady really sings. Okay, know, okay, one, okay. Yes, yes. 148 out of 222 to agree to this amendment. It's oh. only a cabinet decision. Okay. It's not final. Up up until the day in which the... the you see, even Undi 18, Undi 18, when they passed the amendment to the constitution... How long did it take for them to actually carry it into effect? Right. Well, that took almost two years from the day in which they passed the amendment to carry it into effect. Correct. That's number one. And you see, there are so many, and then there'll be a lot of lobbying, there'll be concerns, uh, there, there, there'll be a lot of uh, uh, consultations, and, and they are in fact required to consult the concerns of the rulers, right? right? Whether consent is required from the conference of rulers. It's another matter, which, of course, I'm not going to go into that as well, but it is a requirement that they must be consulted. So um, until that happens, until the, the law is really amended, the, the bill is passed, and the, uh, the, 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 the effect of those provisions are being carried into effect, the op- rather make operative, mm. uh, I suppose it's still too early to say anything. Okay. But what I can say is that this is Parliament's uh, right to do that. It's Parliament's right to do that. It's, I think it has been always the commitment of the government to amend the constitution. It's been long, long overdue. They are free and they have always any, every right. In fact, what we have been seeing in court is this, is that you have every right to carry, carry on with your amendment. Nobody will stop you with that. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is that it is also the court's power, it is equally the court's power to interpret constitutions based on established constitutional principles, based on the organic theory, based on the, the, the generals and, and uh, 
an expensive uh, way of interpreting constitutional provisions so that you can give effect, full effect to every, every right that is embedded in the constitution, in particularly uh, equality, right. the right to equality. So um, it is not mutually exclusive. So parliament can carry on with the commitment um, and until the fat lady sings, I'm not going to, you know, uh, uh, say whether I should be, we should all be celebrating or whatnot. But uh, it's a good move. Lah. I must say it's a good move and we, we, we applaud that move. But we'll be monitoring it very closely. Uh, and and, uh, uh, and and our case in court is not, not affected by this decision by the cabinet. This might sound like a silly question, but because, you know, the case has been ongoing and there have been changes in government throughout the process, right? Um, so now who... Who would be the opposing counsel in the case now if if cabinet has already decided that they will grant uh, confer automatic citizenship? Like who you know? Do you know? Do you know what I'm trying to say? That's a yes. very dumb question, but yeah. Well, they 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 they, they can decide uh, administratively that they're gonna grant or not grant, but I think the decision of the cabinet is that they will amend the constitution. They are okay. not saying that we will grant. Right, okay. Right. okay. They're not saying that they will grant now. And in, in fact, from today or rather last Friday, every child that is born of a Malaysian woman overseas uh, should be granted citizenship by operation of law. They are not saying that. They are just saying that they will be making moves to amend the existing uh, provisions in the constitution. Okay. In other words, they are actually saying that they are actually acknowledging that the the the, the provisions in the constitution is discriminatory, mm. and their view, their solution is to is is amend uh, is amendment. Okay, okay. So it's it's basically just one sort of step forward, lah. In this, that's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. But you are okay. You won't say anything until yes, until we hear that that proverb, proverbial fat lady singing. Um, but we, I mean, we haven't asked you anything. But is there anything that you would like to add? You know, with regard to this. Yeah, I think um, we welcome the the amendments uh, suggested by the parliament. But I think um, in terms of the law regarding citizenship, I think Abraham will agree with me that um, we should still look, re-look at our constitution. Um, there are other provisions governing like adopted children um, and divorce, uh, mother, divorce, wife. And we have all different uh, provisions that we should also look at mm -hmm. to ensure that um, nobody is left out uh, because we have seen um, cases where uh, the the woman, a foreign woman, um, you know, married a local Malaysian coming all the way from the home country, gave birth to the children. Then eventually when they are divorced, um, this person is not given any um, PR or citizenship and she's actually left hanging literally in the country without uh, a status. She can't, uh, we can't possibly expect her to go back to original country um, because uh, just no more connection with the original country. Mm -hmm. So, and and I think in the second schedule, if I remember correctly, it also talks about uh, the adopted children, uh, whether I think, so, and also the illegitimate uh, children. So there are still many provisions that I think we should look at. Okay. Um, yes, building on that, uh, sorry, Juliet. Yeah. I, I think I think um, there are a lot of societal complications as far as citizenship provisions are concerned, and that was because the constitutional construct, if in relation to citizenship, at at fifty seven, 
is very different from today. So just on that fact, just to pick one example, one obvious example of children born out of wedlock, right? So if a child is born out of wedlock, there's an interpretive section in the constitution uh, which talks about the fact that you must then follow the citizenship of the mother if you are illegitimate. Right. So it was at that point of time, during the colonial era, they were trying to solve this problem. They were trying to say that, you know, actually foreigners, foreign men actually come and then they, you know, they have children uh, born out of wedlock with local mothers. So it was intended for, it was a good intention actually, it was an underlying good intention in which they want to weed out statelessness so that then the, the child who is born in Malaysia can then be granted citizenship, the Malaysian citizenship. Because usually then the foreigner, foreign man post-colonialism uh, would then leave the country and go back to, you know, England or, or France or whereabout. But then the mother will stay and then the child will stay. So the child is protected in that sense. But in today's society, where the tables are turned again, and it is the other way around, it's the Malaysian father, um, more often than not having a child born out of wedlock with a foreign mother. The mother comes from Indonesia, from the, uh, the Philippines, have a child, and then the, the, the Filipino mother will leave the country. So if you were to insist that, oh, the same, same uh, uh, standard would apply and citizenship should follow that of the mother, then the child will effectively be stateless. Right. Because he will not be able to inherit the citizenship of the Malaysian father, but he has he's forced to then, you know, mm. and uh, to follow the citizenship of the, the, the mother who, who can no longer be traced. So that is a, a real societal problem, which unfortunately, if you were to apply the constitution in such a literal way and not to consider the underlying context and considerations uh, of the same in the background, then it would actually produce an absurd result as what we has this has described even though you know then the child is later on adopted by malaysian parents but then jpn will still insist that oh no 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 his biological mother is a filipino you better go back to the philippines and to get citizenship from that filipino mother who we can no longer be found mm -hmm. and for all intents purposes the child already has a new family malaysian family culturalized in family brought up as a malaysian uh, but regarded as an alien so how absurd can that be actually in, in, in that situation? Yeah, yeah, so on that somber note, I shall pass it back to you. Okay, yes. I mean, we're basically condemning these children to a life of hardship, right? I mean, no access to public schools, no access to, you know, public health care, you know, and we've seen, I mean, we've spoken to, you know, uh, mothers, uh, you know, in this situation, family frontiers and all of that, you know, the kind of struggles that they have to face on that level, number one, but also the kind of like impact it has on the children where they don't feel like they belong. Uh, you know, they're made to feel like outsiders, even though Malaysia is the only home that they know, for example, right? So yeah, anyway, we need to, a lot of changes need to happen. Okay. All right. Let's just go for a quick break, guys. When we come back, let's talk about our second topic for today. Uh, we want to talk about freedom of expression and I guess, you know, the policy of um, people's bodies and women's clothing. You know, we've been seeing a lot of cases of that happening recently. I'm speaking today to Ki Hui Yi. She's a lawyer with Kanasilinga Menko. And Abraham Au, he's a constitutional lawyer from Messrs. G.S. Nija. Uh, it's another episode of Law and Behold. We're tackling uh, citizenship, but also, uh, yes, your freedom of expression and, and clothing. Uh, we'll have more after this quick break. Keep it right here on Law and Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back. This is Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today are Ki Hui Yi and Abraham Aug. Hui Yi is a lawyer with Kanas Lingam & Co. And Abraham is a constitutional lawyer from Messrs GS Nija. It's another episode of Law & Behold. Uh, it's our 49th episode. We're close to 50. And uh, we are tackling uh, two topics today, citizenship and also freedom of expression. So before the break, you know, we were talking all about how the cabinet under this new unity government have decided to update current laws to confer automatic citizenship to the children of Malaysian women who were born overseas. But, you know, as Abraham pointed out, it's not, you know, nothing is set in stone yet. There's still a lot of uh, hurdles ahead. So let's let's keep an eye on that and let's hope for the best. Now I want to turn our attention to some, I don't know, for me, it was some rather uh, troubling spate of incidents, right, which which sounded like a lot of moral policing of women's clothing. So several incidents. Um, one, you know, just last Thursday, a 60-year-old businesswoman was barred from using the elevator at the Pasigudang City Council for allegedly dressing inappropriately. Uh, she was wearing a a long dress that extended to her mid-calf and covered shoes, but she, you know, was turned away. There was another separate case in Pera where, uh, and this was quite troubling, a woman reported was reportedly scolded or told off by a medical worker for being indecently dressed while seeking treatment at a hospital at 11pm. This was on the uh, 12th of February. Another case, um, a lady was uh, denied entry into a police station in Kajang because she was wearing a pair of shorts um, because, yeah, so the length of her trousers um, and I think it was just yesterday a woman was ordered to leave the day one rakyat lobby for wearing a skirt with a slit that was deemed too high, exposing her thigh. We know that Article 10 covers freedom of speech, assembly and association. Do dress codes infringe on freedom of expression in any way, Hui? You want to take this one? Yeah, uh, thanks, Julia, for the um, very interesting opening. I think uh, those headlines have been uh, very troubling I think, you know, people are being denied basic rights to healthcare, even to the police station. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in the uh, Court of Appeal, uh, this has been a while, I think in 2015, in the uh, cross-dressing case in the Greece Milan, uh, the judgment by uh, the Justice uh, Mama Isham Mudin Yunus, uh, this case actually talks about an attire is part of your freedom of expression. You can wear however you like, to put it simply, okay? Okay. So uh, in, in that case, if um, I'll just jog the, the listener's memory. This was quite, quite huge at the time mm. that um, a few uh, Muslim men, they were, I'll call it, they have been harassed by the religious authorities uh, for dressing up as women. And uh, they were diagnosed with a medical condition called the gender identity disorder. And at that time, uh, Section 66 of the Negri um, Samilan Sharia Criminal Enactment uh, criminalizes a male Muslim who wears a woman's attire or to pose as woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in other states, of course, uh, because it's state enactments, different states have different uh, provision, and some of the states have actually uh, removed this sort of uh, provision. So at that time, a challenge was found uh, in court to uh, wanting the court to decide whether this provision uh, was constitutional. So in, in the judgment, uh, in the Court of Appeal, the uh, court says that a person's dress, attire or articles of clothing are a form of expression uh, which is guaranteed under Article 10.1a. And the... Uh, court went on to 
actually uh, quote uh, Prof. Shad's book, uh, which says that uh, the ones dressing how you dress up, how you are groomed, can should be treated as part of one's freedom of expression. So in, in that case, um, Section 66 was uh, ruled as unconstitutional. Uh, however, unfortunately, uh, when the case went up to federal court, um, it was overruled on technical grounds. So basically in federal court, um, uh, the panel was of the view that uh, constitutional challenge should be uh, referred uh, directly to federal court. Of course, uh, subsequently, another case, uh, I think it's Alma Nudo, um, uh, Abraham can help me out, I think uh, said that the this part of the judgment uh, was actually per in which is wrong. So, but we're not going to go into those technical grounds, but uh, the short answer, yes, um, how you dress up, how you want to express yourself, uh, is guaranteed under Article Ten One Eight. Okay, so and that makes that you know all of these incidents even more troubling, right? Because and I, I remember reading this, you know, that back in 2015, uh, the then Minister of the uh, Prime Minister's Department, so that was Datuk Sri Azalina Othman, uh, she clarified in Parliament that there is no enforceable or statutory dress code for the public, and this one she's referring to when it comes to government departments or agencies, right? So you know, based on all those things that I mentioned earlier, can services be denied to you solely based on your attire? So first of all, I believe um, the the so-called dress code mm. is just a guideline. It is not part of the law. And I also personally think it shouldn't be legislated. I think it would be very absurd if we are telling people what to wear, uh, where do you go. So normally when uh, we go to, say, a, a religious uh, premises mm. or you uh, go to some government department, you will always see, I think it always says it's a guideline rather than any law. So uh, to me, I think it's wrong that such important, essential services are uh, being denied to the public. Okay, so so there is sort of no legal right for someone to impose a dress code uh, anywhere, like whether it's government agencies, whether it's in your own building, for example. I mean, is there, is, do, I mean, do you have a legal right to do that? Uh, of course, if we go back to the constitution, if we look at Article 10 again, um, your freedom of expression can be restricted by parliament uh, by passing a law if it's of uh, concerns of security and stuff like that, which is why if we look at uh, penal code, we have some provisions that says that you cannot dress up as a military, you cannot impersonate a soldier. Mm-hmm. And, and and things like that. So, you know, to say whether um, any laws can be imposed, yes, but it has to be passed by the parliament um, because of what is said in the constitution. Okay. So, but as it stands, right, uh, we know that uh, it's, it's meant to be a guideline. It cannot be enforced by law. Um, and, and, you know, as you said as well, you know, it constitutes a symbolic form of uh, freedom of speech and expression, right, which is also covered in our legal provisions, right? So if I am denied services, right, so let's say, for example, I, I you know, I've been robbed, I, I'm wearing shorts, I go to the police station and I'm denied services. I mean, what sort of recourse is there available to me uh, to seek some justice over that, you know, over being denied essential services, for example? Can I sue, basically, is what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> I think, again, I think Abraham will agree with me. Anybody can sue for anything. <laughs> but um, jokes aside, if it's a... So under the Criminal Procedure Code, 
um, anybody can lodge a police report for anything. And the police who is stationed there, the police station will have to accept the report. Okay. So if there is um, a breach of any, I, I would call it like their disciplinary rules or, you know, something that you think the uh, police has done wrong, you can actually lodge a complaint um, with um, the integrity unit. So uh, then they will investigate. And if it's about other government agencies, other government departments, I believe you can lodge a report with uh, JPA and they will carry out their own investigation. So uh, that's, I, I think you, you definitely have a right to seek for some recourse. Okay. And this is another article that I came up with, which I'll sharing with you as well, right? Um, and it said basically that uh, dress codes at government premises, for example, is in line with the fifth principle of the Rukun Nagara. Uh, and, you know, all these incidents sort of like, um, I, I don't know, it's it's in line with, you know, um, it's in line with the, the fifth uh, the fifth sort of principle of Rukun Nagara, which is the lack of mutual respect and tolerance. You know, if we don't sort of follow these things, it can cause arguments and conflicts to, you know, occur among the people. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, you know, bringing the Rukun Nagara into uh, this, this argument here? I, I thought that line of argument has been stretched a bit too far. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, of course, we always ask each other to mutually respect each other. But to say that, you know, you are um, wearing shorts to go to hospital, uh, which, you know, when it's emergency, I don't see how, to me, this is some sort of uh, moral policing Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't, we shouldn't impose such stringent requirement when someone is, uh, have to access to this essential service. Yeah. And you know, again, it's very arbitrary, right? I mean, what you decide is uh, immoral or improper, right? The length of the shorts. Like, I mean, that, that lady who I mentioned, uh, you know, her, her dress was right down to her mid-calf, you know, so which, you know, to you and me perhaps is, is really considered quite, um, yeah, it's, it's really quite <laughs> moderate, yes. isn't it? I think um, that's, that's um, part of the reason why um, many people also argue that things like this shouldn't be legislated because who's supposed to be the judge? You know, yeah. are we really going to go after this kind of so-called offences uh, every day? Don't mm. uh, we have better things to do? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for, for like, you know, places like the police station, for police stations or even hospitals, I mean, your job is to, you know, safeguard people's health and security, uh, not to be the Rakyat's moral police, isn't it? I mean, I mean that's yeah. how I feel about it. Yeah, so I think it, it is very... Um, I, I think the Director General of Health also came out uh, with a statement to say that um, the hospital will still treat the patients regardless of how you dress, which I think is correct because mm-hmm. I remember uh, reading a tweet on Twitter saying that, you know, guys, I think you should start wearing long pants and, and long sleeves when you, you're going to bed because if something happens to you when you're asleep, you might be sent to hospital and, and they might refuse to treat you. I mean, I, I thought it was quite funny, but yeah. if this really happens, do we really want to go down that road? Mm, mm, definitely. Um, Abraham, sorry, anything you wanted to add to uh, to what we've been discussing? Um, not really. Just to say that perhaps in law, you know, when we look at how freedom of expression can be limited, of course, we are not saying that freedom of expression is absolute, that you can, you know, uh, you, you, you can run naked, you know, in the hospital and still yes. expect people to treat you with respect. 
Of course, there has to be a stock. There has to be a limit. Uh, but uh, as far as I know in law, um, when we talk about morality as a ground to uh, restrict freedom of expression, it has to be based on public morality rather than private morality. It has to be what um, values that is perceived as right or wrong mm -hmm. uh, in the right thinking members of the society. And that is an objective test, right? Yeah. And it has to be based, I think the, the court of review in Siwa Rasa Rasya's case back in 2006, judgment of the late uh, Gopasri Ram, justice of the court of review. So he said that, you know, um, morality within the context of the law, as well as the constitution, would depend on what is the value, what is right or wrong at a particular time, at a particular place, at a particular level of civilization, for example, and uh, and to be determined on a, an objective basis. So it has it cannot be so unreasonable, and if it's so unreasonable, a particular law, even if it's a law passed by parliament, and if it's so unreasonable to the extent that it doesn't fall within this uh, context of public morality rather than private morality, which is perceived only by a portion or a segment or one or two persons' views, yeah. uh, and it has no uh, rather correlation with public order. If something which caused a public nuisance, for example, I mean, if your if your way of expressing yourself has caused a public nuisance, for example, it is it can be a criminal offense, no doubt about it. Yeah, right. You can't bash in the place of worship and start shouting and start singing and say that, oh, no, it's part of my freedom of expression. That is not permitted, obviously. Yeah. So um, so uh, it has to be looked at, at that context reasonably and objectively. Uh, that's my short view. Okay, and I, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because you know just just last week as well, um, there was a a parade in Trunganu, right? And this was by the past youth, uh, and they were marching with fake weapons. They were dressed in sort of uh, medieval costumes. Um, it, it yeah, it, it it was it was a bit of a strange thing to see, but that also I guess you know could cause some people to because the way they looked as well with the weapons and everything. I mean that might cause some people alarm, isn't it? Seeing people marching, uh, you know, in these costumes costumes, you know, with fake weapons, albeit fake, but, you know, with weapons, right? I mean, is that also sort of like, uh, if we were to tell them that that's something that, you know, is, is 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 that going against their freedom of expression if we were to tell them that they cannot do that as well? Yeah, I think we have covered this before when we were talking about um, freedom, a uh, right to peaceful assembly. Yeah. So when I saw the news um, uh, that came to my mind, um, I am actually not sure uh, what's the objective of the whole you know, rally and stuff. Um, but I know that the police is investigating. Mm -hmm. So back to a question, uh, whether someone is allowed to uh, dress up or carry wep uh, weapons, uh, even if it's fake in public. Actually, if we look at um, the penal code, um, I mentioned earlier, section 140 actually says that um, to dress up as a soldier, say sailor or airman, um, with the intention to make someone believe that you, you are a soldier, uh, is actually no offence. Okay. And uh, section uh, 144 also says that if you are carrying weapons at unlawful assemblies, this is also an offence. So, again, I think uh, under the law, we have 
I, sufficient uh, safeguard, you know, to prevent what Abraham talked about earlier, mm. you know, whether you can run around naked and if you look at uh, the penal code again, um, it is an offence to actually, I think if you're drunk in public, it's also an offence. Yeah. And, you know, outright uh, modesty and those kind of things are actually all covered by the law. So, you know, I, I think that to further impose further laws to tell people how to dress up will really be quite ridiculous. <laughs> Couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, this this moral policing basically that's been happening is, is an ongoing issue. Right? I mean, every year it's it's coming up. Um, I really hope that, you know, there is some very... Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of MPs, you know, coming up and talking, uh, you know, speaking up against it. So I really hope that, uh, you know, these little... I, I think they like to call them little Napoleons, right? That these little Napoleons are put in their place and, you know, stop telling women or people, you know, how to dress. Um, if, you know, if it is... Based on that, what what did you say, Abraham? Um, public versus uh, private morality. 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 Yeah, yeah. I think we we appreciate the hard work of the civil servants, right? Mm-hmm. I think they are just doing their job. What needs to happen, I in my view, is that there's a clear instruction or clear guidelines from the top to tell them what to do. Because uh, like what you have pointed out earlier, Julia, it's it's very arbitrary, right? Yeah. You go to this police station, they might be okay or how, how you dress. Then you go to another place, um, things seems to be different. Mm. So I think there has to be a clear internal um, an instruction within the civil service so that they, they know uh, what they are doing. Mm-hmm. And they also need to know what the boundaries are, right? And also, you know, not to overstep yes. those boundaries as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Ki Hui Yi, a lawyer with Kanasilinga Menko, and Abraham Ao, a constitution lawyer from Messrs. GS Nijar. It was another episode of Law & Behold. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn, or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.